this is Catherine Queen, uh, admissions tutor and lecturer in planning. And Anna Smilewska, um, consultant clinical virologist and uh, lecturer. And we're both at the University of Liverpool and you're listening to the Academy's Developing Practice podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Academy's Developing Practice podcast. In this episode, we chat with Anna and Catherine about their work developing academic practices to widen participation and reflect on how the principles of their practice can be transferred to other disciplines. We hope you enjoy. Catherine and Anna, we're really pleased to be speaking to you today. Widening participation has been a key priority across higher education for a while, and so we know many colleagues will be interested to hear about your work and how it might apply to their discipline. But before we get started, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background and how you've arrived at the role you're in today at the university. So, Catherine, if we start with you. Yeah, sure. So I had a a slightly unusual background. I actually started as a landscape architect, which I did for 25 years. So thinking about design and placemaking to start off with. And then later on, I specialised in landscape and visual impact assessment for sort of big, ugly projects like motorways, power stations, that kind of thing. Um, And I realised that my work was increasingly becoming planning oriented and and thinking about achieving planning balance and so I did the MCD at Liverpool did a postgraduate course um, which was a conversion course into town planning and to be honest it changed my life Um, I became really attracted to research as a way of explaining some of the the challenges that I was facing in my job and then after I graduated I started a part-time PhD at the University of Exeter to answer a burning question about why the public are disengaged from planning And I thought it would help my day job and make me a better practitioner. Um, But actually, I realised that I could achieve much more as an academic than I could as a practitioner. So when a job came up at Liverpool, um, which was two years ago during COVID, I actually applied for it. And now I work in the team that trained me as a planner. Oh, that's fantastic. And I think some of your colleagues work part time in industry and part time at the university. Are you full time at the university or do you do you still do some practice? Um, I am full time, but I have a a very good little black book full of contacts. Um, So I try and use those as much as possible. I'll probably touch on that a little bit later on, actually. That's fantastic. Thanks, Catherine. Anna, how about yourself? Um, Hi, everybody. Um, So my background is a medical doctor. So I took a fairly standard pathway in that direction. So I went to medical school. I trained as a junior doctor. I took a break for a PhD. And I ended up in a very niche specialty called clinical virology. So it's um, it's probably it's something that most people don't think exists or didn't think existed before the pandemic. Um, I am I'm lab based. And this means that my contact with patients is limited. I don't get to run around in scrubs with a stethoscope around around my neck. Um, but I do get to advise on very complex viral infections. So during the pandemic, when uh, the testing was being escalated, it was people like myself and my colleagues who were interpreting the tests and giving clinical advice and giving advice and treatment. And where I was working before, we would also look after the infection control within the hospital, which was obviously a very important aspect of it. Um, So at the moment, this is what I'm doing at Luft, 
and I'm also an honorary lecturer with the University of Liverpool. I don't really have any formal teaching background um, so far, but I have always taught as doctors were expected to teach, were expected to pass on our knowledge. And I've taught everyone really from undergraduates to junior doctors, to lab members, people who worked in the lab with me, to other specialists like GPs, so outreach into the community, pharmacists, you name it. Fantastic. And the reason we know each other is because you've been engaging with the postgraduate certificate in academic practice based in the academy, haven't you? So has that supported you in terms of those kind of informal teaching um, opportunities that you still have? Absolutely. I mean, it's really made me look into how how I approach the teaching that I do, because it is unlike teaching a course, it is very haphazard. And a lot of what I do needs to be adapted very heavily to the audience that I presented to. So it's been very helpful and very interesting. Anna, how how do you feel after the last couple of years? I mean, you've been right in the in the eye of the storm, I guess. Um, it's been interesting. Right. A lot <laughs> to learn. I think it's been it's been a very very steep learning curve. It's some of it some of it has been amazing and I have worked with absolutely amazing teams. You know, especially the beginning when I have to say it was just astounding how we all came together and I don't think we all expected to. I think everyone everyone was very stressed, everyone was very frightened, but somehow it all came together. And I still remember we got, within the first two months, we got a card, a thank you card that arrived out of nowhere. In, you know, in the lab, we never get thank you cards because patients are, are not aware that we're there. And it was a thank you card from A&E that said, thank you so much for supporting us. What you do is great. Keep up the good work. And I thought this is the first time we, yeah. <laughs> we've yeah we connected like that and yeah oh that's so that's, that's the positive aspect of it yeah definitely that's a nice story i mean it's always nice to get a thank you isn't it i mean that mm. and sometimes organizations they they lose that you know you lose mm. it's very easy to lose that culture isn't it of just you know thinking i wonder how they're getting on and you know haven't they done such a great job and how that's impacted on our work so that's that's really good to hear from an organisational development sort of point of view. Mm, definitely. Uh, yeah, I really like that. So we are talking about widening participation today. So what can you tell us from your experience? What prompted you to start this work? Catherine, I'll come to you. Um, well, as I said, I was working in a, a planning consultancy on major infrastructure projects. So, you know, big, ugly stuff, the sort of things that people hate. But I realised that less than 1% of the public were actually engaging with these planning consultations for the work that I was doing. And that was what gave rise to the PhD question. So it kind of answers your previous comment, really. And it started me thinking about how we can actually use planning education to address some of the barriers that I was identifying um, in that research. And I realised how important it was to have diversity in our cohorts and to be thinking about widening participation at every level. Um, I mean, I'm an admissions tutor. So, you know, thinking about widening participation from admissions right through the students' education and all the way through to how they actually implement what they've learnt in their future employment. Um, So the planning school here at Liverpool is actually accredited by the RTPI. That's the Royal Town Planning Institute. And all of this fitted in really well with how they want to see 
widening participation in education. And also they want to see more diversity in the profession as a whole so that planners can do their job better. So it feels like this theme has kind of run through everything, you know, from research into teaching and right through into employability. Brilliant. So Anna, is it the same is it the same sort of reasons behind you going into the into looking into widening participation? I think it's similar. I think my first reason would probably be quite selfish because I remember when I was first starting on my infection training and I had to teach some medical students and that was my first seminar and I was very nervous and I and I walked in and there was one of the students sprawled on the front desk and I said, what's the matter? And he said, well, I'm going to be a surgeon. There is absolutely nothing that would interest me that you could tell me. And I thought, right, that sounds like a challenge. And that's, I think, in this, in some similar ways that Catherine said, I was wondering, why do people not want to engage with this absolutely fascinating topic that I want to convey to them, even if they want to do other things? How do I make this more interesting? You know, how do I make them engage with me, even if they they want to do something completely different? So that I think that was my, my my first reason. And my second one was that, frankly, a lot of very inspirational people I've met in my career. So a lot of my colleagues have come from very unusual backgrounds. So not not the standard thing like me. You know, got my A levels applied to clinical school you know, off I went. But for example, one of the one of the very inspirational people I worked with in the lab when I was doing my PhD, she used to run a pub. You know, so she was very good at organizing, you know, the proverbial in a brewery. And all her skills just transferred to organizing, you know, where she was working. And she had no scientific background. It's just one day she decided, I want to do this. And off she went. You know, one of my mentors um, didn't have a medical background. He came from science, but he probably knew more about, you know, medical virology than anyone else I've met in my life. And it's it, it got me thinking, you know, should we bring more people into this? How do we bring more people into this discipline? How do we, you know, engage further afield? Um, so tell us, tell us the answer to your question, Anna, in terms of, how do you get that surgeon to really engage with your field? How do you widen participation? Um, so again, good question. I'm still trying to answer that question, actually, I think as as, as we all are. Um, I think that, first of all, when you teach, it needs to be relevant to something that you're interested in. So in his particular case, I, I did say, you know, if you are, if you see a patient having a heart attack and arresting, are you going to do something about it or are you going to call the cardiologist to deal with it? So I said, how about I teach you what the emergencies are and what you will have to deal with yourself and explain to you what to do? And then if you're interested a bit more, we can talk about other things. So I started, you know, what is the most relevant thing to everyone in the room? Let's talk about that. Let's relate, you know, has anyone seen this? Has anyone seen this in real life? Let's talk about something practical, you know. I think I think my favorite session that I've done um, so far was I was I was supposed to give, so this was widely regarded as the most boring session in the entire year. And it was, I drew the short straw and it was on, um, on uh, preventing outbreaks. 
and infection control, which is very, very dry. So I said, look, guys, instead of this, how about we do some biological warfare? How about we do the reverse? We engineer the best possible organism. So we and everyone was really excited about this. They haven't done this before. You know, so we had a wonderfully interactive session where we actually covered all the bits about infection control just in reverse. I like I like what you were saying about um how actually there's real strength in in being part of a lab where you've got someone who's worked in a pub beforehand and mm. you've you've got that kind of strength through difference and different experiences that all come together around kind of one task. Is there any work that you've been doing to try and kind of celebrate and um, draw in difference within the work that you're doing, because actually that brings real strength to the practice. So at the moment, what I'm really trying to work on is engaging um, the people who work in the lab with us, not necessarily the medics, but everyone else. So the scientists who actually do the test, you know, everyone from the lowest point of their training to the highest point of their training, because their backgrounds are very different and they will come from very different places. And I feel that they will bring to any session I do, um, any group always brings something interesting. But on top of that, it's it's very important to remember that in the end, we're all working. We, we all have one goal. You know, it's it's about a sample coming from a patient and traveling all the way through to where I can see the results and actually do something with it. Brilliant. Thank you, Anna. And Catherine, how about yourself? Can you tell us what this looks like for your discipline? I suppose, first of all, I I feel like it's really important to understand what we mean by widening participation. And I've kind of got different um, definitions of that, depending on which aspect of my job I'm thinking about. So I mentioned being an admissions tutor. So I've got an awareness of what the widening participation team do at the university. But in my own work, I'm working on sort of other definitions of that, really. Um, You know, there's the methods that we use in our academic practice. um, And to a certain extent, I suppose that's what we're focusing on today. But I'm also involved in incorporating the need for widening participation in the students' future employment. So I suppose I just kind of break it down into three areas, really. Um, So I've got my research, which looks at seldom heard voices and non-participation. So I actually use that as the basis for research-led teaching so that students can actually learn from from what I've been finding. Um, But I try and combine that with practice-led teaching. So I've got these links with external practitioners and we try and use real world scenarios and projects all the way through. So to go back to what Anna was saying, I was smiling. It's relevance. It's it's making mm. it relevant to them so they can understand why they're doing it, you know, and what it's all about. Um, but we've got a problem in planning, which is that we, we desperately need more planners. And it's a question of how we actually widen participation to get more people into the the industry. And I'm actually doing a little bit of research into apprenticeships at the moment. And that's something that the Royal Town Planning Institute thinks would be a really good solution. And so I suppose the question is what we can do as an institution. Um, So I'm actually using the second module of the PGCAP to investigate whether apprenticeships might be a solution to widening participation in planning, for example, sort of inside and outside academia. And, you know, all of this fits really well with the university strategy 2026. And that's all about meeting the needs of employers and professional bodies. So I just feel like every aspect of this is kind of coming together, which is really nice. 
it also meets the graduate attributes, doesn't it? Um, that employability, um, being global citizens and things like that, it, it, it definitely ties into a lot of that as well. Um, you know, that widening participation agenda across the student body and not just, you know, how to widen participation once you've got them in. So I, I, I agree, Catherine, I, there is lots of strands to this. So I'm sure this work has probably had its difficulties Tell us some of the key challenges that you've that you've found, Catherine, and maybe some of the things that you've done to try and overcome them. Well, <laughs> that's a really good question. Um, yeah, thinking about using real life projects, that can be a real challenge in itself. Um, trying to encourage the students to think outside their own comfort zone. Um, I really enjoyed the PG cap because I was able to frame this through Vygotsky's um, zone of proximal development. So I was able to give it a name, which was really exciting. And I actually found that it was easier for undergraduate students. They were a bit more open to ideas, trying different things and thinking outside the box, as it were. Um, the postgraduate taught students tend to think in a bit more depth and they actually find it quite challenging. And then they put it all in their EVASIS forms. So that's kind of interesting. <laughs> I think they still enjoyed it. Um, and I think other things like finding pedagogical methods that are inclusive for all students as well. That That's a big thing for me. And sort of I've used a much wider range, um, particularly important after COVID. Um, trying to engage with students who'd only been taught online was really difficult. It was really hard. And I was teaching second years, so they'd only had a year of studying online. But I actually had a residential field trip for a week as part of the module that I was teaching. And, you know, that was absolutely brilliant. It really helped because it was less pressure. It was more relaxed. You got to know them. Um, it was outside the sort of the university lecture theatres. Um, so that actually really helped with that. Yeah. So I think, yeah, having that more interaction and, and sort of getting to know the students a little bit was was really helpful. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it's difficult, isn't it, I, I guess, because I, I guess you're trying to find the balance between the forced interaction and but trying to make it as natural as possible in a more relaxed environment to actually get, you know, get those conversations going. It must it, it must be challenging. Anna, have you found the same thing? Have those uh, been your challenges as well, or have you had different ones? Um, it's They're quite similar. I mean, very few of um, the people I'm teaching have been purely online, but a lot of teaching has gone online because we are obviously trying to minimize face-to-face -face contact. But yes, you probably saw me nodding while, while Catherine was talking. It is actually very difficult to get people to speak to each other after covid yeah so do you think then the the challenges of um widening participation have been are exacerbated by the move to online uh lectures online learning is that or is that not a fair question um i think it's a fair question but it's i don't think it's going to be a straightforward answer <laughs> okay um while i think there are great benefits to face to face teaching we also need to remember that some it's it doesn't work for some people. And for some people, it is important to have something recorded that they can watch. So it's very much diversifying um, what would we deliver, I think. What do you think, Catherine? Yeah, definitely. Um, I've tried different methods to get them talking. I tried role play, which I've never done before. And I thought they'd hate it. <laughs> and, and actually, they loved it because I just got them to sign up into different groups and to pretend to be 
something else. So some of them were pretending to be planners, some of them were pretending to be the public, and then actually getting them to debate it. And they were adopting these personas as a, a stroppy member of the public or a, a really set in their ways kind of planner. And it was the probably the most entertaining session I've ever done. So, yeah, I completely agree with you. You need to be quite imaginative and just find different ways of, of getting them to engage with it. Once you get them going, that's it. Then it's, it, the problem is getting them to stop, to be honest. And probably the most memorable because it was it was so different. Yeah, I, I've done something di um, similar to that, Catherine, where I was doing some work with students around problem-based learning. And they again, they took on a role around um, a multi-agency team working around a child. This was in education. Um, and they they remembered, you know, it's something that really embedded that learning within, you know, their memories of when, when we look back on the module, that was one of the things that kept coming up, that they really got into it. And, and it really helped in terms of their learning around the roles of those practitioners and um, yeah, we, we found that to be really effective as well in our teaching. I think if it's not assessed um, as well, because yeah. I, I did it as an exercise on a field trip and it wasn't being assessed, but it was the thing where they had to collect information and then, you know, think as this this different kind of persona. Um, so that was good. So they didn't feel pressured in any way. And yeah. they could have a bit of fun with it. It took a while to get them warmed up. But yeah, as I say, <laughs> once they got going, it was great. <laughs> Well, there's lots from what um, you've both been sharing um, that we can draw from and reflect on. There's some key principles, I think, there in the work that you've been doing that could be transferred to other disciplines. So if we were to summarise that um, for others to reflect on in terms of how they could apply it to their own work, what kind of um, what would you want to highlight, Anna, for others to think about in terms of those kind of key principles around this work that you've done with widening participation? I think the first principle, and Catherine will probably agree with me, is that it needs to be relevant. So showing how how what you're teaching is relevant to what that person is doing is very important. But I also think it's very important to remember that everyone has potential to learn. It's just a question of how you engage with it. It's, pro it's probably, you know, feeds back to the multi multimodal um, approach that we were discussing. And I think the third one is that Learning doesn't have to be done in a formal setting. So, you know, as you described the role plays and the field trips, etc. So everyone learns all the time and from different experiences. And that very much feeds back into what I was saying, that people from very different backgrounds um, can bring something new and can, you know, can achieve great heights and come travel there by very unusual paths. Um, I would endorse everything that Anna just said. <laughs> Completely agree. Um, I would actually say be a bit imaginative. Mm. Um, and what I mean by that is think about different ways, different methods for students to work together and present their ideas. Um, I mean, I'm old, so I'm, I'm you know, pre-digital and whatever. So don't just think about all these digital methods, but think about ways of communicating using kind of more old fashioned methods such as pen and paper and post-it notes and whatever. And trying to think about a way for everyone to shine just so that you're not just hearing the same voices all the time. You know, and students are thinking about the content rather than, you know, amazing presentations. So um, I remember when I was looking at one of the PG CAP modules, looking at the um, the student success framework vision. And it was this idea of, of students having the chance of an experience which 
I suppose, helps them to achieve their full potential. And, you know, they need to be able to express themselves in different ways and to shine and to to demonstrate what they can do in different ways. I'm not sure how that works so much in, in a lab scenario. I think that's probably a bit more difficult. It works very well from planning. But, you know, maybe if you're in a lab, you can think about um, kind of end users, users and think about personas again. You know, think about what you're doing and actually relate it to people. So it's just a thought. Yeah, I think that maybe brings us back to our point where we're saying that actual actually difference brings real strength to something, doesn't it? Whether it's difference in the way that we engage the students or the people who are in the room, um, that really does help. We don't want everything to be the same because it only works for one set of people. So this podcast is called the Developing Practice Podcast, and we like to finish each episode in the same way where we get three or four take-home tips that the listeners could reflect on in terms of their own personal practice. So if you do have maybe a couple of tips each, uh, in relation to this pot topic, what would they be? Um, Anna, if I can start with you. So it's difficult to summarize into three or four points, but I'd probably say, um, as I've mentioned before, that you need to remember that learning takes place everywhere. And everyone comes to you from a different lived experience and a different background. And while you can teach them something, they can also teach you. And as Alex said, there is a lot of strength in diversity and a lot of strength in different points of view. Um, I suppose one of my points would be about just seeing the world through other eyes and trying to encourage students to do the same. So we can do that as well as the students. Um, My favourite book is actually Stephen Brookfield's book about being a critically reflective teacher. And a lot of the things in that are about, um, you know, seeing through the eyes of your peers, seeing through the eyes of students and teachers and, and the public. And I think that applies as much to me as it does to them. So that that's probably my favourite book, I think, which came out PG Cat. Any more? Um, I'm actually going to butt in with another one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> go on. <laughs> um, we were kind of talking about. Um, this idea of lived experience and both Anna and I have been talking about this and and I think we've got a lot of similarities and I was just going to throw out an example I've actually um, given you a link to a report that was published last week and I'm quite proud of this because it's it's something that the students actually inputted to and it's you know it's a United Nations um, Arab University of Liverpool report and what we did was actually ask the students to think about somebody else's lived experience and put themselves in the place of somebody else and then to actually think about um you know uh, an assessment essay based on that which then got incorporated into the evidence base for the report and i think sometimes if you can think about authentic assessment where there's that opportunity for them to not only see the relevance but to actually have something demonstrable at the end of it so they've actually got their names in a report and for them, this is like a big deal. You know, this is something that um, will go on their CV and whatever. So I'm not sure I can come up with too many authentic assessments that are that good. But I think it's just something to aim for, really. You know, not only relevant, but actually, yeah, they're, they're quite proud of what they did as well. That's that's really interesting. I, I, you got me thinking about something else as well in terms of assessment and in terms of uh, points to take to take home, really. A lot of the time when we when we recruit, we do rely on assessments that are actually quite rigid. 
And in a way, we're probably set by people who were like us. So in a way, we're trying to pick out people who will be a bit like us as they continue studying. So I think I, I don't have an answer, but it's definitely something to think about in terms of how we get our students in the first place and how we pick them. Yeah. Thanks for your time, Anna and Catherine. It's really good to have this chat with you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was a really interesting conversation, which which focused on this concept of academic practices that enhance widening participation within a discipline. I found what Anna and Catherine both said about using a range of innovative teaching methods as a way of ensuring all students could participate and access the curriculum was really interesting. Yeah, it was really good to explore that secondary meaning of widening participation, wasn't it? So that obviously enabled us to think about our existing students and how valuing diversity and seeing difference within the classroom is a strength that we can utilise for engagement. Yes, absolutely. Well, if you'd like to take your thinking further, we've added some resources to the website on a specific podcast reading list, which you can access at liverpool.ac.uk forward slash the hyphen academy forward slash podcast. And we also love to hear what you think about each episode. So please do tweet us at Live Uni Academy and you can find us at eLearnerMatt or at Alexandra underscore Owen on Twitter. And we're really grateful for those who have taken the time to either rate or review our show in your podcast providers app. So if you haven't done so already, please do take the time to review our show or even better, simply share the episode with friends and colleagues on your social media. Bye for now. Bye.